Hey, Deserving Listeners, we have a very special guest on the podcast. Brian, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Hello, I am Brian Faldudo, and I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell us about your podcast. Yeah, I got lots of things in the works. I got the podcast at the moment. Um, It's called The Gay Life Coach Podcast. It's an attempt to make mindfulness conversations more accessible to the queer community. I think that I'm a young guy and I have a little bit of a, you know, you mentioned my 15 minutes of fame in School of Rock. I think there's a void of mindful conversations in certain areas of the queer community. And I'm just trying to try and fill that gap a little bit for people who want access to it in just like a fun, friendly, accessible way, you know? Yeah. So my one question about your 15 minutes of fame was... What is Jack Black like behind the behind the the scenes? He's everything you'd expect, honestly. He's he's so much fun. He's so clever. He's talented. He's uh, you might you might be surprised to know he's very professional. Actually, he's very like um, you know he has like a great work ethic. Um, I don't know how he cultivates cultivates so much energy all the time, but it's pretty authentic and it's 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 always there. And he's also just like massively kind. It, the movie has been out for 17 years now, and he's still, like, very much in touch with all of us, um, you know, funding projects and, um, like, checking in on people. And, yeah, I just don't know of many celebrities that that care that much or, like, make that sort of effort. So it's really, he's a very special human. Well, that's great. Yeah. We also have Colin on the podcast who is going to be reading some of the listeners' questions. Colin, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Well, I'm Colin Miller, and I live in Texas. I work with both of these gentlemen, Kirk and Brian, in the Gay Men's Mindfulness Collective and Psychology in Seattle, respectively. So start us off, Colin, with a question for Brian. So... Let, okay, so we've got questions for Brian and Kirk, and then we've got questions specifically for Brian. So I'll scroll down to my nerdy, highlighted, and yellow question for Brian. So <laughs> this is from More Deserving Listeners. So for anybody you know that isn't a patron of the Psychology in Seattle podcast, there are different levels. You can go to the website and do that there. So anyway, this person is a More Deserving Listener, Tom Cat from the wonderful Discord, which you can also join. Just plugging everything at the beginning here. A lot of great conversations going on the Discord. Anyway, he asks, I have a question for Brian, but I'm not sure how to word it in a way that doesn't sound offensive. I'm a trans guy who transitioned at 30, and I'm mainly into women. Earlier in life, I identified as a mostly gay woman when I was female presenting. I have had a number of pretty atrocious dating and friendship experiences in the LGBTQIA community, especially after I came out as trans. I am interested in whether other people can relate. Suppose that's to listeners. My experiences have honestly connected to the trope that the LGBTQIA community has, quote unquote, a lot of crazy within it. I guess I would say that I and many of my friends have encountered a lot of difficult slash tricky behavior that includes highly emotionally reactive or inconsistent behavior, some of which include sexual behavior that can range from compulsive to sexual anorexia. Some people can be abusive. Some people are extremely needy or extremely avoidant. There's also a lot of stuff that comes across as immature. This is the question. Is all of this, which is quite a bit, due to the trauma of being in a marginalized community? 
is all this because a lot of LGBTQIA people start dating a bit later in life and are less experienced, almost like teenagers? Brian, what do you think? Wow, that is a lot. Um, it's, but it's a very valid question. Um, you know, I'm hesitant to make any generalizations because I feel like that question could easily like slide into like a generalization about how the community is or how everyone is. And I know I, I struggle to do that sometimes, but it really related to a lot of what was being said about just, you know, that some of the toxic relationships that ensue within the community and some of the behaviors that we have towards one another or towards ourselves, um, which is kind of why I do what I do. Cause I, I, I certainly was struggling with a, the reason that some of my behaviors were a little off course for a while was because I was really disassociated from myself uh, my whole life, like growing up, you know, I had no, um, relationship with myself that I was proud of, you know? So it was always like me constantly trying to prove myself or getting myself into these situations where I wanted to like, um, establish my worth essentially. And so I think that the, 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 yeah, a lot of these tendencies do originate sort of from that place where you are disconnected from yourself. But I do think that there's, that's not necessarily everyone's journey. So it's really hard to make a generalization. I'm curious what your thoughts are, Kirk. I think that part of the work that with coming out is sort of working on all that healing and that connection to oneself. So I do think that I agree that that, that work needs to be done, but it's hard for me to say without really like being involved in that person's situations, you know? Yeah. I think Tomcat brings up some probably valid speculations for some people in that the trauma of society and often in your own family, people around you, is going to give you some complexes and some sensitivities, some mm. difficulty trusting other people, some difficulty loving yourself. And whenever we enter into very vulnerable romantic situations, then those kinds of distrusts and uh, low self-esteem are going to affect things for sure. And it's just a tragedy that we do this to people for literally no reason. And then we see the effects of it for sure. The other thing I'll say is that in the heterosexual world and the you know cisgender world, it's not as though life is not without drama. <laughs> so uh, that was my first reaction was, well, you know, it's not like on the other side of the fence, so to speak, that everything's hunky-dory because it's not for sure. <laughs> A lot of people are walking around with relational traumas and with uh, sensitivities or misunderstandings. And I think a big part of what I can say is let's all take it easy on ourselves as we experience that messiness. It's it's okay. You know, life is messy. Romance is messy. And that's all right. Yeah. And I feel like maybe what Tom Cat is, that's who it is, right? Tom Cat? Mm -hmm. It's his is, username on Discord. Got it, got it. It's potentially experiencing is that there are a lot of connections between marginalized, like, um, identification and behaviors and just like the experience of being marginalized. So there are a lot of connections there, but I love that you bring up that there are, there are also just connections to being human. And like a lot of these things are things that we all deal with no matter, no matter. And I do think that that connection to self is kind of the, the the way we heal from all that is I think that everyone at some point needs to stop and and sort of address all these like 
things going on inside of them. And then that way their behaviors stop affecting other people as much and they can more take accountability for their actions. I feel like, you know? Yeah. Well, so you, you, you touched on this a little bit, Brian, but do you think that there is more of what Tomcat is talking about in the LGBTQIA community? Well, <laughs> yes and no. I think that there's, there's that stigma, right? There's, um, I know I run a book club, right. And Colin is part of it. And I feel like, um, one thing we talk about a lot is there is that gay guys, for example, are always like this. These are generalizations. I don't think that they're true, but there's this this stereotype that we're all going to the clubs every weekend and no one's really sitting down and like talking about these things that need to be addressed. You know, like the monster in the room, these things that we've been through, you either collectively and individually. Um, and I think that there needs to one of my passions is creating more spaces where that conversation can happen. Because I do think what happens is we spend all our lives in the closet and then we come out and suddenly we're just like expected to be proud or we put that expectation on ourselves, right? But that's not, there's there's a huge step missing between being closeted and being proud. We have to like put in that work. You don't just like suddenly become proud, but in an effort to be proud of yourself, which is totally honorable, um, you know, you just kind of jump into the community and you, you jump into all these experiences and you go to the clubs and you go to the parades. And then um, before you know it, you're just separated from yourself in a different way because you're identifying with a new idea of being gay, I feel like. Whereas you haven't really taken the time to actually figure out what it is that is you, which is multifaceted, of course, which is why it's hard to like pinpoint any of these issues. But I feel like you know, that's, that's the work is sort of like, and so even for Tomcat, if this is something they're experiencing from people in the community, I do think the answer still to what they're experiencing actually still does lie within their perspective of themselves and their perspective of the community. And I think that they have a lot more power in all of this than they think they do. It's not necessarily like I'm screwed because this is the way the community is. I think that there's, um, you know, there's inner work that, that they can do to sort of just feel better about it all, honestly, and, and, and create options for themselves, which cool. again, I would need to talk to them more about before, before knowing. I think you addressed it pretty well. Colin, cool. what, what about another question? So let's, uh, let's do another one for Brian. Yeah. And, okay. uh, this one comes from famous fan, famous fan and movie zoomer. And also now a friend of mine, Louise Nathan, and, uh, she's well known. She sends in questions a lot. And she wanted to say, I really want to normalize LBGTQIA for my eight-year-old. We are lucky to be part of a very open-minded and inclusive community. We have a trans boy in our group, and it's been pretty much a non-issue with the kids, which is amazing. But what I feel we are missing in some more positive repre- is some more positive representation in kids' movies and shows. I find that LGBTQ people are either not represented or represented in a negative or stereotypical way. What do you think that looks like? And can you recommend any? <laughs> well, there's this movie called School of Rock with this little kid who's not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I do think, I think representation matters, um, to put it as simply. But I think that statement, you know, you hear it so many times, you kind of forget how important it is. But it does, you know, as someone who did play a very sassy, effeminate character on screen when I was younger, I still refrain from calling the character gay because 
I didn't even know what gay meant at the time, so I don't think that I want to throw this label onto this kid, right? But everyone calls me the gay kid from School of Rock, and it's whatever. But I, I do think, you know, I rejected that experience because it was 2003, and I felt really, you know, alienated. All I knew about being gay at the time was that it was bad, and that I sh- that I, I should be ashamed if that was something I was associated with, right? So I ran from this identity that I was being thrust upon me at age 11. And, um, but on the, like, on the flip side of that, so many kids who had never seen like a sassy Liza Minnelli loving kid on screen, you know, really related to my character because that was them too. They were at home and they were like into theater and they were into fashion. And so I think that I'm a testament to not even knowing the power of representation, but just by being myself on screen, all these kids somewhere were like, oh, wow, there's someone out there like me, which just, that can be life-saving. You know, I work in crisis intervention and half of, half of that work is just validation. It's just letting someone know that they are seen, heard and validated, which can be really important to establishing that they're not, alone and helpless and that they have no worth you know yeah absolutely i think that it sounds like they're doing what they 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 want to do just by creating a validating space yeah of what i know about her i would say that it's probably the case she's a wonderful person so this question is for brian and kirk from piss fan and member of the gay men's mindfulness collective patrick marshall He's in both camps. So his question is, can you talk a little bit about toxic masculinity in general and the different attachment styles that gay men can exhibit? Brian, go for it. I mean, that's also a big topic, but I think the, I think that the solution is vulnerability, just like showing up as we are and owning feelings. Right. So I don't want to jump to the solution, but I feel like we're in a day and age where the word toxic masculinity is finally out there enough that people are aware that it's an issue. I don't know if everyone is, (laughs) but um, that's certainly not. But um, I do think, yeah, I think that the, the solution for it is showing up vulnerably. I have so many feelings, so I don't, I don't really feel like I have, (laughs) I can't relate too much to the not showing up without my feelings. I'm always bringing them to the table. I'm curious what you think, Kirk. (laughs) Well, what was the question, Colin, about toxic masculinity? It was really more open-ended. Can you talk about toxic masculinity? I assume this is something that uh, they just would like to be discussed for a short time. So in my pocket, masculinity uh, is not as toxic. And so... I forget sometimes how the just right across the street or people that I don't talk to very much have very much not been exposed to the ideas of evaluating the good side and the bad side of masculinity. And uh, I was just talking to someone last night, and although a lot of the markers culturally I thought that they were very much like me, I was realizing as they were talking about what men were and what women were that he had a very rigid view that I just don't share about what men are and that men are just born this certain way, which the data doesn't show. And I was like, Oh, that's right. I live in a, in a very weird, but great pocket of people who understand the notion of gender and understand toxic masculinity and understand as Brian is saying that vulnerability doesn't mean that you're a, 
bad man. It just means you're bucking up against the system of paternalism and sexism and unhealthiness. And, you know, and so I think it's way more prevalent than I think I realize. And we have a big problem. Gender in general is a big problem in terms of the way our society sees it. Uh, I mean, you could argue, well, I won't go down that road uh, political wise, but (laughs) the, the point is, is that we have a lot to do. And uh, Brian saying a vulnerability, yes, that's a huge part of it. And I'm glad that you said that. And also just talking about it more and evaluating things more and questioning things more. I mean, there are, there are things that I see from five years ago that I'm like, whoa, that's a problem. Like yeah. my, my wife is watching Friends, which was more than okay. five years ago. And, you know, she will just be sort of relaxed watching Friends. And there are certain jokes on that show that I'm like, oh, my God, that's terrible. You know, and of course, back in the day, it was it didn't register at all. That is so weird that you brought that up, because as you were saying, you were saying, like, even I'm looking back on things five years ago in my mind, I was thinking I was just watching Friends the other day. And I was like, look at this toxic masculine reference. That's crazy. Yeah homophobia yeah every aspect of ross's character yeah 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 and i'm i'm watching it and i'm thinking oh ouch and it hurts as i'm watching it i'm thinking oh because it's not just the joke it's the fact that the audience is laughing the uh, american public are watching and going along with it like everyone is participating in the notions that underlie this joke and and uh, and then on the other hand, I think, well, thank goodness we've come far from that point. But boy, do we have a long way to go. <laughs> boy, right. I mean, I, I work with a lot of clients, male clients, who uh, t- the ideas of masculinity are, are one, if not the barrier to their mental health. And it takes a lot of dismantling years of essentially de- de-brainwashing people about what it is to be a man. I mean, just as an example, um, I've had clients who, couples, heterosexual, where the man, the husband, considers being vulnerable or sort of giving in to his wife to be emasculating, essentially, to be like uh, castrating of him. Because, of course, that's what he's taught, which is just an awful notion and not going to be healthy. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to be vulnerable. You have to be able to give in sometimes. You have to be able to admit when you're wrong. And and it took months, if not years, to deprogram some of these guys that, no, it doesn't. And, and I have an advantage being a male telling another man, no, that is not what it is to be a man. What it is to be a man is to be brave and courageous enough so that you can talk about your feelings, so that you can give in and admit when you're wrong. That's what a real man does. Um, trying to tap into people's notions of positive masculinity. But anyway, those are my thoughts about that. If you take it and then view it through a clear a queer lens also, I think that it... I'm just relating it to my personal experience. You know, I grew up and this idea of being gay was kind of like the ultimate failure, you know, especially just like um, what I was being like, if you even consider friends, like there's a, there's an entire plot line of an episode crafted around the ridiculous notion that Ross and Joey would cuddle together. Um, And like how crazy it would be if two men like wanted to take a nap together. Um, 
And, you know, you just internalize that stuff. And so then when you come out, I do think that toxic masculinity makes its way into the queer community because you come out, but you want to hold on to any sort of semblance of what might be, like, not a failure, right? Or, like, what might make you remain normal or viewed respectively. And so you're going to be gay, but you're going to be, like, this hot, like, macho gay guy who, like, works out all the time, right? And, like, has, um, you know, there's these there's these norms that we still try try to subscribe to rather than just like, and I'm not saying that every gay guy has like effeminate features, but I do think that there's a disowning of selves that, that happens when you're, you're striving to achieve some sense of like normalcy that's been established by the culture. Um, so yeah, I don't think that, I think that sometimes people think that like gay people are immune from toxic masculinity, but I think that's far from the case. <laughs> I do want to shout out a friend of mine because I have a platonic napping partner. Now it's not napping. It's more cuddling and like watching movies, but like he's a straight guy and I'm a gay guy and I'm like really good friends with his girlfriend too. And I actually am really proud of the fact that we have that level of intimacy. And I don't know why there's a huge stigma around people who aren't sleeping together showing that kind of affection. Because I I would even, because I I can pick out in my life even just people who I know that would think that's weird, you know? Oh, absolutely. I imagine all sorts of people would think that's weird. And it's one of the dumbest notions that gets propagated in our society what is the problem with two guys cuddling? What is the problem with two friends holding hands or hugging or or touching each It's like, what is the problem, people? And we have so many mental health problems because of this physical isolation. So I'm really glad that you have that, Colin. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, just recently, my brother was like showing me pictures of his friend on Instagram. I was like, they're weird pictures. Do you think he's gay? And I was like, so because he posts weird pictures on Instagram (laughs) that don't fit like your form of masculinity, that this man might be gay. Like, I don't understand. And if he is, that's fine, too. But like, what is what standard of normal posting on Instagram would suffice for you to think that he was manly enough to not be gay? You know, it's crazy. Yeah, indeed. So this is a question for both of you, and, or rather, it's a series of questions. There's a few here, but they're, they're connected to the same subject, so I'll go ahead and read it all. It's from an anonymous fan, and the question is, how come when I'm alone, I think about worst-case scenarios that are extremely unlikely slash impossible? These hypothetical scenarios honestly cause me stress and anxiety. Why do I do this? What can I replace these thoughts with? What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think that that's, well, here I'm learning that we are made up of all different parts of ourselves, right? So I think that when you're alone, you probably, there's a fear of loneliness. I think we all have that. We're connective human beings. And so I feel like, especially if this idea of being alone is something that you've feared because you've been told that that's also like this idea of failure. Like if we end up alone or if we're lonely, then that's like a negative feeling, right? So in order to avoid that negative feeling, I think that there's like this fight or flight response from the brain that is trans like creating all these panic narratives in your mind so that you can react to it in like a safe, protective way. But that's not necessary. The brain is still operating as though you're being traced by a tiger because that's when the brain was invented, right? Like back in caveman times. But you're actually 
it's it's a much less severe stressor, right? It's just this idea that you must you might be alone tonight. And so I think that the brain is producing all these narratives so that you are, you know, acting in this way to protect yourself, but you but there's no way to act really. So really the thoughts are just filling up in your brain and causing all this stress. And it's yeah, that can be super anxiety inducing. And I've been there. And I think that um the way to avoid that is to, well, sometimes you just have to look loneliness in the face and realize that it's not as fearful and terrible as you thought it was going to be. Usually it's just kind of like the monster under the bed kind of situation. Um, and then there's also a bunch of things you can do to cultivate positive narratives to get through those moments, just to, such as like, um, I mean, there's like a ton of self-care options, but if like listening to music is something that kind of makes you feel seen and heard, then that's like, a way to avoid like this feeling of loneliness, right? Or you can journal and put your thoughts down. I think that if any of these thoughts are circulating in your mind that are causing you stress and then you write them down and look at them, they suddenly lose a little bit of power, right? All right, let's take a break and when we get back, let's continue answering the questions. What do you say? Great. All right, we're back from the break. Colin, do you have another question for Brian? I do. So when before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about fear. So I'm going to follow that up with another fear question. This is from an anonymous fan for both of you. Why do some people like to be scared? Well, I I do think that there's a, a, a weird sort of comfort that comes with discomfort. Um, I do think there's... I'm having trouble relating it to fear at the moment, so maybe you can help me out with that, Kirk. But I'm feeling like... I just know in relation to making change or or entering a, a, the opportunity for change or a situation where there could be change, um, I think that a lot of people sometimes prefer to remain in the discomfort of like stagnation because um, it's known. You know, the unknown is scary um, and uncertainty is scary and no one wants to live in those places, which is the I think the funny part of it because all that life is is unknown and uncertainty I feel like so it's like that is if you want to like engage with life I feel like those are the things you have to engage with but um those are understandably scary so I think people like to stay put sometimes so and there's a certain there's a weird sort of comfort in that um what are your thoughts yeah exactly that's very similar to what I was going to say which is I always think about Kurt Cobain's line, I miss the comfort of being sad. Mm-hmm. And I very much feel that way myself as a childhood emo sort of kid <laughs> and, you know, Depeche Mode listening sort of person. And I, when I think back, and I don't know if I've ever really thought about it this way until right now that, yeah, the comfort of being sad, but I think it's different. I think it's deeper than that in that, it is I have sadness that isn't being heard or I feel like isn't being heard. And at least I'm going to allow myself to feel it and I'm going to take care of myself. You know, we have different sides of ourselves. And so I'm going to allow myself to be sad while another part of me allows that to happen and notices it because no one else is noticing it. I wonder if that's part of it, too. What do you think? I do. I I do. Something that I've been kind of tuning into lately, because I've been on this whole like awareness, consciousness expansion journey, right? 
And you'd think that that would be comforting, but it's actually a little, it is weird, right? Because there's all these different, you start to discover all these different voices and energies within yourself. And the whole point is to join, like, is to draw awareness to everything. But then that comes with, like, the ability to choose what to listen to and, like, what to what to believe and that's that's scary it gives you like this autonomy over like yourself which is empowering but also scary um and that's a little off topic i think of what you just asked me but i feel like um i feel like that relates i mean as i'm also i'm a coach as we've been talking about but i'm also a songwriter which is like the other half of what i do and one of the questions i get asked sometimes is like do songwriters purposely stay sad because that's where they write songs from and i'm like um you know Yes and no. Like, that is such a strong place to be able to tap into emotion because you feel like there's so much to get out of it, right? But um, I, but at the same time, no, because it, you also want to be able to leave that space and not just, like, be trapped in it. So <laughs> For me, fear, it, it always comes down to the context because there's real fear. Well, I don't want to... Okay, so there's, like, I'm in a deadly situation without my consent and I feel unsafe or somebody near me is unsafe. Like that's something I never enjoy. However, there are levels of, of fear where I I feel like I'm getting it in a safe way. And so it kind of clues my body in to like, just as a reminder, Hey, you're in control all the time. Like you're having to be responsible for your life and everyone's life all the time. And many people feel that way. And to be able to kind of let that go, like whether it's a fantasy scenario in the bedroom or if you're watching a horror movie and everything in between, you know, again, it all just comes down to the to releasing whatever whatever chemicals in the body you need to release. Because also, isn't aren't there studies that show that we have more anxiety because we were kind of talking about this earlier with like the tiger, because we're waiting for that kind of... Um, that thing we need to fight against. And so when we don't have an outlet for it, it kind of feels weird to us. I don't know if that could be like totally wrong, but no, that's one way to put it for sure. Yeah. So we've got a couple of questions that relate to something that I know Brian has a lot of experience with both in his own life and as a coach. So we're going to kind of lump, and these are both from discord. Um, the first one is from deserving listener and the username is soft noodles. And then we also have an active contributor Rowan, and I'm just going to kind of lump them together. Soft noodles thinks it would be interesting if Kirk and Brian could talk about shame Deep shame about our identity and who we are as a person can stop us from being ourselves. Then Rowan goes on to say, It can be hard for my partner to stay mindful and present when there are decades of shame and heterosexism for him to unlearn. Uh, Sometimes the gay loneliness feels like a black hole. Where can we find role models? Do you have any advice in this regard? And um, do gay and bisexual men have a harder time dealing with relationships in their late 20s early 30s because of this i'm not sure what the age has to do with it but they did clarify i mean shame is a huge topic right especially i just know especially well i think everywhere because because Brene brown's work is so popular right now but i think that within the queer community shame plays a huge factor um especially amongst gay men i think in just it's just kind of enrooted just because of cultural messaging that I think even just in the stuff I shared before, there was this idea that I should be ashamed of of who or what I am. And that just doesn't go away, you know? Um, and so what I've been learning a lot lately is that 
these things, when they get shifted to the unconscious, they actually like grow and fester without our awareness. And so I think one of the things that maybe happens when we come out of the closet and we just suddenly become prideful (laughs) is we just take all that shame and we just shift it to the unconscious. And then it's creating all these like things that we're doing that we're not really aware that shame is the motivator. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves or receive validation and you know, it leads to a lot of like self-sabotaging behavior. Cause another thing that happens is we want to, at our core, we kind of start to want, it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy where we want to like prove to ourselves that we are as worthless as we were told growing up. Cause that's, again, that's the discomfort that we grew up with. And so there's a certain familiarity with it. And we create these scenarios, I think often where we're, we're putting ourselves back into that place or at least proving our lack of worth by either going into a relationship with someone who we know is not going to reciprocate our feelings or um, that's only an example I could think of. Or like, there's a lot of like addictions that people talk about within the queer community, things that um, things that just kind of like reestablish that view of ourselves that we grew up with rather than doing the work of like total self-embracing acceptance, which... Um, which would be the healer to shame. One thing I've been warning about lately, though, because I made this mistake, is when I recognized that shame was kind of like the root of everything, I was like, well, I'm going to be the most shameful, shameless person there ever was. I'm very type A about like solving solutions like that. And that's also not the thing to do either, because shame does have a valid role. There's There's healthy shame in our lives, and I think that it's about making friends with your with the shame voice inside of you rather than trying to suppress it. Cause again, when we, the things that we resist persist. So I think that if we, if we shove that aside, we're going to actually give it more power. So it's, it's about finding this weird relationship with this part of you that feels unworthy and then cultivating language that, that can feel more empowered, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have a, anything to add to that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Next question is from an anonymous patron from the Facebook fan page. So I'm interested in the stereotypes that make it difficult for bisexual people to come out. There are many that center around, and this is a list, shifty, slippery, hypersexual, unfaithful, gay and pretending to be straight, etc. How can one deal with these harmful associations? Oh, that made me sad. Um... Yeah, that's that's frustrating to hear that people... Um, I'm just aware that there's a lot of, like, stigma around bisexual people and there's, like, a... As if it's not valid. Um, how can they deal with it? Well, I think that we should go back to, like, one of, like, the four agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz, right? Don't, um, don't take anything personally, which is always harder to do. But I do think that... Um, it's always easier said than done, but I do think that, um, all these things that someone's saying about you probably just have to do with their own insecurities about how they identify or how they see themselves. So I don't think that they actually have anything to do with, with, um, how you present yourself to the world because, um, yeah, they're just viewing things through their, their own, their own narratives that they grew up with and their own, their own thought patterns. So... I don't know, maybe find some comfort in that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we need to do more to raise awareness. As I've been watching reality TV, there's a bisexual 
individual on one of the reality TV shows that I'm watching, and they are conflating polyamory with with being bisexual. And so I'm just pointing that out. And lots of people have been emailing and commenting about thanking me for bringing that up or and just raising awareness for bisexuality or not shaming it or something. And it made me realize that, you know, we have the LGBTQIA thing for a reason, right? The LGB. Sometimes we forget that there's a B in there and that's for the bisexual people. And it might be something next on the, our societal agenda of just saying, look, there's another group of people that need to be understood and celebrated and allowed to be who they are. Yeah. Next question comes from a member of the Gay Men's Mindfulness Collective, Preston Light. And this question is for both of you. What does healthy grief look like? I know that everyone goes through this differently, but what are some pitfalls to avoid? I feel like I'm always going first. Do you want to go first? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I've worked a lot with the topic of grief. And the very, very brief thing that I'll say, because I'm sure listeners have heard me talk about a lot of times, is that there's no universality to the stages of grief. Um, the five stages of grief don't uh, exist or some people can go through those stages, but it's not universal by any means. Research has shown that. But there are, there's, there's two modes that people go into with grief, and this is what research has found, is that people will either grieve, they'll feel the feelings, they'll remember, they'll talk about it, they'll feel the pain, they'll search for that person, they'll journal, they'll look through old pictures, they'll uh, go to the grave site, they'll get angry, they'll, get, they'll feel guilty. And then there's that mode, there's the grieving mode. Then there's another mode of what we call rebuilding, which is where you don't want to think about it and you want to move on and you want to have joy in your life and you don't want to ruminate on it and you don't want to feel the loss and you want to create new relationships and you want to laugh at jokes. And, and these two modes, when people are left to their own devices, they will naturally go back and forth and will signal to others which mode that they're in. The problem is when we have a society that shames people really for either mode, uh, depending on the sort of point of view of the individual. It's like, oh, why are you laughing at a comedy show a week after your mom died? There's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Or why are you still grieving the loss of your dad even though he died three years ago? What's wrong with you? The problem is when we have society and individuals shaming others for their natural bodily states of grief, then that's when the people have complications. That's when the people develop prolonged grief and complicated grief and shame themselves and stay stuck in the grief. If people are left to their own devices, then people are fine and we have to really get to know that for ourselves and know that in others so that we can just allow the body to be what it needs to be in the moment. Yeah, I feel that, especially that last bit, allow the body to be what it needs to be in the moment. I think we should just not underestimate that cliche that we see all over Instagram these days, which is feel your feelings. But I do think that it, it, it really allows the experience of grief to be a little bit more like transitory. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I feel like you know, if you're experiencing everything as it's coming up for you, you're not really stifling everything and it just allows, it makes, it allows for the experience to flow a little bit more easier. 
But of course, we're battling shame over our feelings and guilt and all these things. So it is, it is tough. But I'm, I'm always working on that. I'm trying my best because I, uh, I actually am writing a song right now where you can't skip the step where you cry. Because um, I'm a mindfulness coach and, you know, there's, mindfulness is all about like thought work and viewing things in a different light and shifting your perspective and being stronger than your problems and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you also have to like, feel the feeling first and like allow for it to be a part of you. Yeah, that's great. Anonymous fan has a question for Brian. They start off with, hi there, Brian. General greeting. Hello. (laughs) Queer Asian American non-binary person here. For a a variety of reasons, I have felt unseen by or traumatized or commodified within the gay community. I'm talking about things like dating profiles and unspoken social rules like not racist but only into white guys or no spice, no rice, or even mask for mask only attitudes. They seem to all stem from a reaction to the heteronormative Eurocentric standard of desirability of beauty and also of beauty validity. They go on to talk about how, how even bare subculture has those issues, but the questions become... What perspectives have you picked up on from your journey? And what words of wisdom do you have for queers, both white and POC alike? And of course, POC, people of color. I didn't mean to mansplain you. I'm sure you know what that means. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're totally valid in like drawing that conclusion that, that this is a, a cultural issue that they're receiving an effect from. Um, I think that that's totally fair. I would say... Um, you know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated topic for sure. I recently guested on a podcast called Disability After Dark, and um, I had this beautiful conversation about like ableism within the community. And I think that can kind of be applied here, similarly to what you were saying about bisexual persons. I think that we're just that's where representation and awareness and conversation are so important. I think that we're all so caught up in our own narratives which is a result of a lack of awareness and just sort of trying to survive that we're not really we're not really creating this space there's a harriet learner quote that is if we could only listen with the same passion we have for for being heard and i think that um you know there's like this there is kind of like this um, survival tribe mentality to being gay. Um, You grow up being acutely aware of your surroundings to protect yourself. And then you come out of the closet and you continue sort of living in that way. Um, And I think if you pause and do the self healing that allows your mind to open a little bit, and then you can, you can sort of like listen to different perspectives and maybe we can shift the culture so that we don't have so many like, like selective things on our profiles. It's like we're at a menu. I think that we should be a little bit more open to the experience that any individual can bring us rather than, um, there's also nothing wrong with knowing like what you're into, but I think that that there's a difference between that and then just creating like additional limitations. Cause if you think about it, limitations are the reason that we felt put in a box in the first place. So I don't think we should continue doing that to other people. But I'm curious what you think, Kirk. <laughs> the only thing I'll say in addition to what you're saying, I guess, is just to provide an example of my life where, as an Asian American, I and my people were oppressed, particularly in the past. 
experience a lot of racism. And one of the things that I would notice is that uh, some Japanese Americans would adopt the white narrative of white supremacy and would also be racist against black people. So you'd have, and it always confused me because I'd be looking at Japanese Americans and hearing them being racist against black people, I'm thinking, don't you realize that <laughs> we're we're in that direction in comparison to white people? Like you're just, you're throwing us under the bus as well. But as you were saying, Brian, you know, when you are growing up in a world of oppression and survival, and then you finally sort of find your group or your your thing, it's not like all of a sudden all that self-protection and resentment or pain goes away. It's got to come out somehow, and, and there's just a lifetime of healing from the tragedy that needs to happen, and the tragedy is going to manifest in a lot of ways, and it can manifest in being unfair to other groups. When I see it, I, I try to be compassionate about it. I was like, well, I, I, I think I know where that comes from. But at the same time, you know, let's, let's try to see it for what it is, which is adopting the hetero white supremacy mainstream propaganda. And we need to do what we can to fight against this, even though we are the oppressed group as well. We're both the oppressed and the oppressor. And that's okay. That's, it's it's going to happen because... Yeah. We've all adopted the oppressor's narrative. We all have to, unfortunately, work on that. Yeah. Unfortunately, that low like view of yourself causes you to view others as inferior as well, because like that, mm. that low self-esteem sort of correlates in that way, which is just honestly a sign that you have low self-esteem. So if you're, on, if you're viewing people in a, in a negative way, you should probably look back at yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So this one is for Kirk. And it comes from Gay Men Self Care Book Club member, who's actually in the book club, Howard Barnett. He's a uh-huh. wonderful man. And there's a little story here, so I'll just tell it. It's kind of a beautiful story, so I want to tell all of it. So I'm a 37-year-old man, gay man, who was closeted until the age of 34. I was married for almost 14 years and have a 13-year-old son. His mother and I had an extremely amicable divorce. We share 50-50 custody and retain a healthy, communicative co-parenting relationship. In December, with my ex-wife's approval and to the delight of our son, I moved in with my boyfriend. My boyfriend is also my age, but has been out since he was 19. He's had a previous long-term healthy relationship with a man, and they got married. He and his ex-husband discussed having children, and he's always wanted to be a father. However, this is his first experience having a child in his care. I trust my boyfriend implicitly, and know he only has what uh, my son's best interests at heart. My son has truly opened his heart to him and currently hero worships him. thought that was funny. Their relationship truly fills up my heart, and I couldn't be happier that my son has two strong and involved father figures. However, it was like a long build-up to a butt. <laughs> yeah. There are times where I have, I have had to pull the dad card and remind him that he has only known my child for a short time. My son is a wonderful kid and has rarely gotten in trouble. However, sometimes he can be lazy, especially now that he's a teenager, and often careless, especially with other people's feelings. I don't want my boyfriend to always have to be the good guy, and he doesn't want to be that either. But there have been times where I have to tell him to let me handle the situation as my son's father. 
I would like to know where I should draw the line as a partner and a father. What is the correct way to approach my boyfriend when I need him to take a step back? Common issue in step families, uh, if not universal, there's always tension around what role the step parent is going to take. And there's uh, pros and cons on either side. You, If you pull back too far, then you're not involved enough. And if you involve yourself too much, then you can cause some issues. Of course, I don't know with this family what's happening, but uh, the first recommendation I would say is a family therapist uh, to help the parents to uh, figure out what they want to do together, the father and the stepfather, and uh, and how they want to work out the arrangement. Because it's possible that the person emailing in, if we were to you know assess the situation, it's possible that they are actually in the wrong because. <laughs> the step the step partner is uh, perhaps in the right to say like, look, uh, this kid is not cleaning up after himself in the bathroom, and his his biological father doesn't do anything about it, and I'm not going to stand for that crap, literally. And so he's got to clean up the bathroom. Um, you know, we might be like, well, that sounds reasonable. So it's hard to know what where the line is but the the key always is is having all the parents have an agreement prior to heading into a parenting situation such that everyone knows that they're they're not pissing off the other parent and there's a lot of flexibility there so i think it's just a lot of conversation and in some ways what i'll say to the person emailing in is you have a it sounds like you have a great partner a great relationship a great kid and what a wonderful thing that your partner actually wants to get involved. You know, if anything, a lot of step parents in the situation, they, they just don't get involved and they just distance themselves. So you're probably on the good side of things that your partner actually wants to be that full parent who loves the child, but also draws some limits. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a matter of fine tuning that a little bit in the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to add other than it sounds like, a, a, at its core, it sounds like a communication issue. And I think the the thing I really tuned into is they asked, how do I approach? Which is which always feels a little bit like as if they're going to try and control the other person's reaction to what they have to share or expect some sort of reaction from them that's going to like allow for healing on their end, which kind of means that they're either not ready to share or that they're trying to like tweak the outcome of their share. So I think that... Um, I do think it's like a communication that could probably be communication situation that could probably be aided by a therapist, but it's also just like, sometimes it's good to just like put it out there, you know, in, a, in the most honest way possible. And they might, they might get a more honest answer that way. Right. And parenting is messy and step parenting transitions are messy and that's okay. It's the beauty of families is that you get to be messy with each other. There's one question I had from an anonymous fan for Brian. Um, they're a black trans woman, and sometimes they feel experience. They or rather, they experience feelings of self-deprecation. Their father is very opposed to their lifestyle as a trans woman. This father has said he's open to having a conversation about it, but how? And this is their question: How do I initiate a sad conversation, knowing he already has negative feelings about something that is quintessentially me? Again, it kind of goes. 
I think it's a similar answer to what we just were talking, what I just kind of shared about the approach. Because it sounds like, it sounds a little bit like she wants to control, you know, she's trying to figure out how she can potentially control this, this the way this conversation is going to go, right? But I don't think that there's any way to, there's too many variables involved. A lot of times what I, in my crisis intervention work is I ask people in those types of situations to make a list of all the things that they can control. It can feel a little bit more empowering rather than this, this uphill battle that feels a little bit helpless. Cause there's, it sounds like there's a whole nother person's perspective and views and values involved. So there's really, which is, you know, upsetting and it can be super alienating and um, can cause a lack of validation, but that's why it's so much so important to like have other options for support. And if they are going to enter this conversation that is super scary, they should have like a plan B and a plan C for self care afterwards so that they can, um, have something to fall back on, given that they don't know how the conversation is going to go. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think I want to be mindful of the time, Brian. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to get to know you better. It was great to get to know you. I hope I get to meet you again soon. I just want to plug the book club quickly, if that's cool. Please, plug all the plugs. Apparently, Howard um, reached on. He is a member of the book club. The book club is my newest initiative. I think that there's self-help books are so popular right now and so are book clubs and I just tried to combine those two ideas it's a self-help book club for gay men a lot of the self-help genres out there do not address our community specifically or they talk as if the queer lens does not exist so we are having conversation where we're taking self-help topics and we're dissecting it in a way that is meaningful to us and um and it's uh, so f- we've, we're, on, we're only on book two, and it is a really magical experience, I think. Um, everyone's really bringing their honesty and authenticity to the table, and it's just a great way to connect with each other. So how do people find that? So they go to the Gay Men's Mindfulness Collective on Facebook, and then it, the events will be listed there. There's other programming, too, but the book club is, is so, the one that's kind of in the works so much so far, and it's, um, it's real fun. Colin's in part of it, too. Of course, yes, I am. I love it. Brian's a wonderful person, and I've had a great experience. Every aspect of the book club is wonderful because, yes, the the content is great and you learn a lot, but also I have been starved for real social interaction. I have my quarantine little group that I get to hang out with. Very thankful. Very thankful I get to see my family. But meeting new people is something I have been longing for in this in this damn epidemic. And so to offer anything remotely related to that is a true blessing. So thank you, Brian, for bringing that to the light. And thank the two of you for coming on the podcast and everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Brian, why should people take care of themselves? (laughs) The answer that came up for me is because who else is gonna? You got to take care of yourself. (laughs) 